0: Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Well, I hope you all had a good Christmas break, because we all needed one after the last 12 months. Historians will be talking about 2022 for years to come, I expect, but let's turn our attention to the year ahead. You'd think it would be a little calmer. Let's hope at least we don't get through three Prime Ministers again. But even in the first days of January, it's already clear we could be in for a rocky ride. The country has been brought to a standstill by strikes. The NHS is under huge pressure. Energy bills remain sky high. And Boris Johnson is said to be plotting a comeback. And that's just in the UK. Russia and Ukraine are still locked in conflict. China, while experiencing a huge surge of COVID cases, is making increasingly aggressive noises about Taiwan. The US and Europe are experiencing, in their different ways, record-busting winter temperatures, and the list goes on. So let's buckle up and work out what's going on and what might happen next. Joining me today are two IFG colleagues who I predict could be just as busy this year as they were last. And that's Chief Economist Gemma Tetlow and Alex Thomas, who runs our civil service work
1: programme. Hello both. Hello. Happy New Year. Did you both manage to escape from politics over Christmas? I completely switched off, yes. So it's very nice to have a break.
2: Yeah, first time for a, a few years. It was some uh, incredibly quiet on the political side, if not on the sort of NHS and strikes and uh, sort of real world side of things.
0: Indeed. And I'm absolutely delighted that we're joined again by author, academic, historian, journalist and podcaster, David Runciman. Hi, David. Hi, how are you? Uh, It's the first uh, Christmas in three years that I haven't had COVID, so I'm feeling on very bouncy Good chipper. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's begin with the subject which is dominating the news, and that's the strikes, which also means inflation and therefore the economy. David, a lot of comparisons are being made with the 1970s, but would you say, do you think that is a helpful way to think about the current situation?
3: No, not really, though I have been watching Stonehouse. I don't know if you've been watching Stonehouse, which <laughs> reminds one the 1970s were another country. Very, very weird. Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I mean, we always look for historical comparisons, but this feels very much like it's a sort of 21st century, indeed a 2022 post COVID, post Brexit scenario. Um, I've been, I mean, like I'm sure you have, I've been struck by, um, I mean, I like Alex's disconnect between politics and the real world, struck by the sort of disconnect between the slightly apocalyptic feel of the real world and the the speeches we've had over the last couple of days. I'm sure we'll get onto them by Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition, the, the sort of optimistic, um, cheerful 2023 can be better um, scenario. But I mean, I think the, in in a way, the big difference with uh, the 1970s is, you know, the 1970s were a decade of industrial action culminating at their end in a, in a winter of discontent. But it wasn't in the way that this feels more like a, a hyper-condensed, accelerated, sort of slightly out of the blue version of a politics that we thought we'd left behind. And so for me, at least, this feels a little bit more like something that we're not as prepared for as people were in the 1970s. In the 1970s, industrial action was part of the language of politics. And I sense with the politicians that they're floundering a bit because this isn't at all familiar for them.
0: I think that's exactly right. And as you say, the speeches have been, from um, Tinak and Starmer, have have been quite interesting. It was remarkable, I thought, how little... Sunak said about uh, the, the strikes in his his speech yesterday he sort of tried to kind of dismiss it at the start and then move on more towards the 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 sunlit uplands of the other things he was he was hoping to deliver in a short and slightly longer
3: term yeah and in a sense it's because I think their hope is that this is a anomaly you know this is in a sense something that can be explained by a series of contingent factors it's not the structural challenge of british politics but when you think about it particularly in relation to the nhs frankly it is the structural challenge of british politics
0: exactly and i mean the indications thus far are that the government is trying to sort of tough it out but do you think that actually is is it's wishful thinking that that is is, is going to work in this this context
3: um, so i don't know and, and in a way i think for all of us it's a bit unfamiliar trying to work out how these things get resolved. I think in the short term, they will be resolved. Uh, I don't think this level of industrial action will go on um, all through the year, but resolving what lies behind it is a completely different matter. So some toughing out might get to a, a, a better solution from the government's point of view over the next few months. But I don't think that does anything to address what lies behind this and what lies behind this are deep, structural factors including labor shortages the consequences of brexit questions about migration and so on and you can't tough those out
0: indeed gemma one of sunak's promises to the people uh, he uh, identified as a, one of the people's priorities uh, yesterday, yesterday was uh, about cutting inflation um do you think that was um uh, him essentially promising something he thinks is going to happen anyway. And what do you think the wider consequences uh, will be if inflation does drop this year?
1: Yes, it was a funny one. I I definitely agree with your suggestion there that really this was, it would be incredibly surprising if inflation doesn't drop pretty sharply this year, um, just from a sort of mechanical impact that energy prices have risen hugely high. And even if they stay high, once we're the sort of denominator effect, so once we are comparing a period of high energy prices to previously high energy prices, just mechanically the growth rate of prices comes down. Um, So getting inflation falling this year um, will be pretty easy to deliver and certainly the central forecast from the Bank of England and the Office of Budget Responsibility are in line with SYNAC's pledge to halve inflation this year. So it's not a particularly stretching target for him Um, something some other horrible unexpected event would probably have to come along for that not to happen Um, so in some ways it's sort of a politically astute thing to identify that matters to people but also is quite relatively easy to deliver Um, but it doesn't mean that some of the challenges and worries about around inflation don't continue to be an issue this year so people continuing to worry about whether they're Incomes are keeping up with price growth um, and the Bank of England particularly continuing to sort of keep an eye on whether inflation expectations are starting to get anchored at at a much higher level and starting to get sort of persistently excessive inflation above the 2% target. And what's it likely to mean for interest rates? It's sort of expectations of interest rates are that they probably rise a bit further from where they are at 3.5% now. Um, I mean, interestingly, it doesn't... Even when inflation is under control, that doesn't necessarily mean that interest rates start to come back down quickly. Um, We were in a really unusual period post-financial crisis and through the pandemic of having incredibly low interest rates. So even if they come back down a bit from the sort of near term peak, we we probably are going to be in a world of higher interest rates than we've been used to for the past decade. And we've got the next big fiscal
0: event um, in March. What options does does Jeremy Hunt have there? Do you think we could be looking at more tax rises?
1: I think that depends largely on what happens in the real world. Um, In the autumn statement, uh, Jeremy Hunt kind of made a choice to delay trying to get public borrowing down and to essentially accept somewhat higher levels of borrowing and less room for manoeuvre against his fiscal rules than had been the case in the previous plan set out by SYNAP last March. Um, I think there are reasons to think that things could actually move in Jeremy Hunt's favour. Um, in particular, the for- the last forecast from the Office of Budget Responsibility were on the basis of interest rate expectations that have now come down. So um, forecasts for government interest rates are now lower than what was kind of baked into that last set of forecasts. And that in itself could free up a few billion pounds a year for the government. So there are reasons to think that perhaps the forecast will look a bit better by March, which might take a bit of pressure off the need for more tax rises. Um, But I guess it's worth saying that's sort of a A medium term position, the sort of five year forecast might look a bit better, but that doesn't take away from the fact that actually the sort of longer term pressure in the UK's public finances remains, that there's greater pressure towards higher spending on things like health and social care, while at the same time, some of the tax bases, particularly things like fuel duty, are being undermined. So the sort of long term pressure remains there that we need to think about how we raise enough revenue to pay for the kind of services that people want.
0: And in the short term, we've been reading that um, the government's bill for our, all of our energy bills might be a bit lower than was anticipated, which might also uh, free things up in the very short term a little bit.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, the latest energy price forecast suggests that actually by the time the £3,000 cap comes in after march it may not be binding so actually the government may not be having to do much to subsidize household energy costs later this year um so that will free up things in it doesn't give the government that much extra room for manoeuvre because that was really the energy price cap was really about short-term government borrowing um whereas the points i was just making about the sort of challenges for thinking about longer-term fiscal sustainability are kind of unaffected by that the government could relatively easily borrow a bit more in the short term to support energy prices, Um, the real challenge is how do you deal with the sort of longer term position of what you're spending every year on the more sort of standing demands of the health service and welfare payments and that sort of thing.
0: Thanks Gemma. So Alex, looking at the sort of um, Sunak's approach which he sort of set out more broadly in his speech yesterday... It seemed to me, you know, that that the speech represented a a recognition that just providing a sort of safe pair of hands following the Truss and Johnson turbulence that we saw last year is no longer enough. He feels like he needs to have a positive agenda that his government is now going to pursue. Do you think he did enough um, uh, to set that out yesterday?
2: Yeah, I agree with your main point there. I think he was, you know, there was a sense that he needed to put himself back in the story, having been, you know, absent, uh, or at least sort of relying on the sense of sort of normalcy, if that's the right word, um, following the Johnson. Uh, truss period. So yes, I agree. He he need, wanted to put himself back in the story, and there was a bit of a sense this week. I mean, it's a very short-term, political sort of game playing, but that he wanted to get out get out ahead of the the speech that Keir Starmer's making today, as we record uh, Thursday. Um, uh, so to 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 be on the front foot, I think uh, you know, he he put himself back in the story. I think it reflected his uh, constrained political position. He's not really in a position to be making kind of grand statements or uh, big uh, vision um, uh, promises when he's got, you know, 18 months or whatever left to run and is so uh, fiscally and politically constrained. So uh, I thought he sort of did, did an okay job there. I thought it was interesting. I mean, Gemma made the point that it might be kind of politically uh, canny to, to make a promise on inflation. But the, the one promise that he made that was, you know, tangible and uh, you know has been discussed before um, but will be phenomenally difficult to, to meet is the is on small boats and, and immigration. So that's going to be a, a running uh, issue for a, for a long time and he's set himself a bit of a, a rod uh, there. But my other reflection on the kind of Sunak position, and I guess this goes to your point as to whether he's done enough. I was thinking you know, this week about how previous governments, whether they're the kind of Blair, uh, Brown or Cameron governments, might have reacted to the strikes and to the NHS problems. And they would have been much more kind of activists, much more interventionist. There would have been, uh, I suspect, uh, cobras, the, the, the contingency planning meetings being called, even if that was a little bit performative and there was a limit to what they were doing. They, I think, would have recognised that the government was in the middle of this story, whether it liked it or not, and so would want to give a sense of management and action and activity. Um, this government up to this point, at least, has seemed to you know be so nervous about putting themselves in the middle of, say, the NHS problems uh that they've uh kept their head down or uh, put out more holding statements i wonder uh, it's a bit like some of the strikes questions i wonder whether that how long that can sustain and whether you know the government is going to be blamed for the nhs problems uh, uh probably uh, and so should they be doing more to put themselves in, in in the position of helping to resolve and solve them however difficult that is rather than uh, being more passive in the uh, in the, in the um in the narrative around around the nhs
0: that's really interesting. David, I mean, the Conservative Party has been in power since 2010. Boris Johnson managed to sort of project a fresh start when he came in. Is that is it plausible for Sunak to try to do the same? This is obviously his, his restart, but we, he can't really escape the fact, can he, that he has been part of the government, which is, um, you know, the consequences of what it has done, uh, good and bad, are what have left us where we are today?
3: You know, I I don't think he can. I mean, the thing that I would love to know is if you you got him on a lie detector thing, does he genuinely think that the Conservatives have any chance at all of winning the next election? And my guess is that he knows they don't, um, that it's done, basically. Um, And so he does, to me, he does give off that. I mean, I know it's a cliche with him, but he does give off that management consultant vibe that he's been handed a basket case and so what he does is he sort of breaks it down into a few manageables, projects a kind of the grown ups are in charge now vibe, and then is going to hand it back. Um, I mean, he may have some vision for a sort of five year, ten year version of conservatism, but I don't. I don't think he does, and I think he thinks that that would be futile. Um, he, ca- he can't relaunch. The one thing that he has going for him, and he falls back on this to my mind far too often, and he did it yesterday. So when he's asked why should people believe you? After the bunch that we've had who didn't do what they said they would do. And he says, Well, people know me because they saw me during the pandemic and most people didn't know who I was. And then there I was on their TV screens telling them that, you know, I would keep them in work and that I would support them through this difficult time. And there was the furlough scheme and they, and I did deliver that. So they know that I'm a man of my word. It's not enough. I mean, I think everyone recognizes those were not just unusual but extreme circumstances, um, it doesn't translate into a, a vision of a politician who can can be trusted. So I don't I don't think in his heart of hearts he believes that he's got much of a chance. And you know, a certain kind of politician under those conditions would go for it. You know, there's something liberating about being doomed. Uh, but management consultants don't think like that. <laughs> they don't think there's something liberating about being doomed. They think that their job is to make the doom a bit less doomy. That was the vibe he gave. I did watch Kiristama this morning, partly because I was coming on this podcast. I didn't think I, I don't think I would have done otherwise. Um, uh, and I thought he was much, much better, I have to say. I mean, I think you, from the two politicians, you do get a real sense that one of them is effectively treading water... And the other one now has genuine conviction that this this is, and he's probably right, this is going to be five to 10 years of Labour government. Um, I mean, I think we had 2022 was that shift. The Tories destroyed their brand. You don't come back from that. You just don't under current political conditions. You know, the polls were level and then the Tories basically just went underwater. They're not coming back. And I think we should accept that. I mean, I think we should think of 2023 as a year in which barring an act of God, we have a much clearer idea than we have in the recent past what's coming next. And it's not the Sunak supremacy.
0: I I, I note how we can't get through any political analysis this day, either you or Gemma, without having to cautiously say that there could be an act of god which ch- changes everything
3: <laughs> There could always be an act of god that's the thing about I, think,
2: of I think the last great. the last time david was on this podcast we, we got ourselves in a real uh, sort of uh, spiral of depression around uh, ukraine and uh, nuclear weapons and how some <laughs> of the, you know the, the only thing that would change british politics would be something so awful that we didn't want to contemplate it <laughs>
0: okay let's not let's not <laughs> so um alex just to go back to the sort of um former incarnation of, of the Conservative Party, we've still got some hangovers, haven't we? So uh, Partygate is still likely to be a feature of our um, news cycle this year. And uh, Covid, with the uh, inquiry uh, ramping up, is, is also going to be back in the news.
2: Yes, I guess hangovers is the word on Partigate, isn't it? But um, I suppose the h- how, how far we focus on Partigate depends on, uh, you know, B. Johnson um, uh, and uh, what happens there. We can expect to see, uh, you know, over the course of the first half of this year, the Privileges Committee, the Parliamentary Inquiry into whether Boris Johnson misled Parliament uh, ramping up. Um, I... <laughs> I suspect that there'll be some interesting things coming out of that. There'll be some very interesting evidence sessions that people uh, are likely to get uh, excited about. I think we can probably, you know, there's a 70-30 chance that they will, yes, find that Johnson misled the house um but probably not suspend him for the 10 days that would trigger a recall position petition that would then you know make his position quite quite as an mp quite difficult so i wonder if that might you know unless you know something happens and 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 johnson uh returns i think that might start to kind of uh shift off uh stage uh right um uh over the first part of the year covid yes the inquiry i mean the um uh uh, the the i don't think we should expect uh you know conclusions from the inquiry or kind of any anything firm coming out of it but as the evidence sessions again ramp up um that will bring that back into the news i mean the, the other thing with covid of course is whether uh god forbid some you know new variant or uh some of the things happening in china changes the, the the dynamic there and we end up with um you know a proper uh back to the future situation but again let's uh let's let's hope that that doesn't happen um uh but that would be the real you know that would be a Uh, a very depressing game changer.
0: And another factor playing in this year is, of course, what approach Rishi Sunak decides to take to the UK's relationship with the EU, which obviously has a a strong Northern Ireland angle, but also uh, an economic angle. Gemma, do you think he may find himself arguing that it's, it's, Prudent to seek closer ties with the EU, or is he just going to stay clear of that?
1: I think the answer to that question depends on something I don't feel very well placed to judge, which is the mood of his parliamentary party. On the economics of it, um, there clearly are economic benefits to be had from a closer relationship with Europe and reducing some of the trade barriers that exist. And there's reasonable evidence now looking at the sort of changes to trade flow intensities that have happened since the Brexit vote and, and the trade and cooperation agreement came into force that suggests there has been um, some sort of negative impact of that on UK trade with Europe. Um, so there, there is an economic case to be made but on it's not one of those things that there will be quick economic benefits from changing the stance. So I don't think there's a there's not a sort of quick political buy off um, to t- taking on um, some of the more anti EU feelings. So I think it really comes down to what's the mood of his party and how can you navigate that. And what about
0: controls on on migration? We've seen the highest uh, inward migration. Uh, ever, I, I think, uh, just before Christmas, the figures that came out in, in November, because of the, well, driven by various unique factors, I think, with the uh, special schemes set up for, for people to, to come here from Hong Kong and Ukraine, and a lot of students returning to the UK post COVID. Uh, but, but where do you think the, the, the government is thinking is likely to be in relation to migration, given the tightness of the UK's labour market?
1: The tight labour market is one of the really big challenges facing the government at the moment because it plays into both the strike action. It obviously strengthens the hand of strikers when you haven't got alternative workers that you can attract to those jobs. And it also plays into the inflation question of just how much price rises in one area start to get baked into um, price rises elsewhere. So it's definitely a huge issue that they're facing. Um, And the sort of further problem for the government is actually a lot of the problem doesn't necessarily seem to be something where there's an obvious policy fix that they can reach for. So in the past, when we've had people drop out of the labour market, it's often, for example, been that those people are sitting on out-of-work benefits and there are things the government can then do to encourage those people back into the workforce, either with carrots or sticks. And this time, a lot of the problem seems to... Well, the problem, if you if you term it a problem, um, is actually more older workers the 50 plus population choosing uh, not to work anymore um, in, in a significant number of cases it seems to be more for sort of financial reasons that they don't need to work and have made a choice no longer to seek employment and that's um, it's much harder to see what the government can do and indeed there's guess there's a debate to be had about whether the government should be trying to change those people's decisions if they've made a a rational choice that they'd rather not be working um so all of that sort of means that fixing the sort of domestic labour force participation problem um is quite hard for the government so that does raise the question of do you want to change our approach to allowing workers in from elsewhere um and it's very i went to the um CBI conference back in October and it's very interesting there just how much of the discussion around the fringes was about the need for relaxing immigration rules to get necessary skilled workers in but it was very noticeable I thought that both from um, Rishi Sunak and then from Keir Starmer the message was very clearly we are not going to hugely liberalise immigration rules. Um, so I think that in, in some ways I think that it, there is a kind of need for government to be clear about the long-term policy direction because if we keep having a a series of kind of temporary relaxation or one-off visa schemes to get certain groups of people in then it makes it hard for business to think about their long-term strategic direction and what they need to do to sort of attract and train up um, relevant workers who are already here David, I think I mean the
0: the whole migration question is is one which for the Labour Party uh, presumably links back to to Brexit and their their sort of careful tightrope they're continuing to tread with wanting to, to win back voters who who might have, have, have gone away from them over the the whole Brexit issue. How do you see Keir Starmer trying to, to tread that tightrope over the next two years?
3: I mean, I think the other big advantage that he's got, and it's, it's it's news of this week, as it were, is that one of the consequences of Rishi Sunak being Prime Minister is that Conservatives face a challenge that under Johnson and Trust they didn't face, which was part of their, the, the appeal of those two candidacies, which is that not only they can, but they will be outflanked on the right. So the Reform Party started making noises. It's going to stand in every Conservative-held seat. They're starting to say things about Tax and they will definitely be saying things about migration. And it's a huge advantage that Starmer has, and I can understand why he therefore just wants to sort of tiptoe around it and let the Tory party deal with it. I mean, it's the equivalent of – it's part of Starmer's success, I think. There is a scenario in British politics in which – John- Johnson or Truss is is Prime Minister and therefore there is no position to the right of the Conservative Party and that is, that's where the Conservative Party on the whole needs to be, electorally, that's all I'm talking about, whereas Starmer had somehow mismanaged dealing with the Corbyn problem to the extent that the Corbynites had broken away and some new party had announced it was going to stand in every seat where there was an incumbent Labour MP. Under those conditions, it would be very, very hard to see Labour winning the election. Under these conditions, all Labour, I think, has to do is just watch. Um, and so there's no incentive, I think, for Starmer to to step in. And if Starmer does increasingly believe, as I think he should, that he he and his party will be in government for a considerable period of time, they have time to think about how to deal with this. I, for now, I think the problems are all on the other side. I'm afraid for the Conservatives, it's very, very difficult to see, with with Sunak as Prime Minister, how they walk that tightrope outflanked on the right is a real problem for them but moving back particularly under sunak where it's not convincing moving back to that more populist position leaves them weak the other way they've got a real problem
0: and the local elections in may may give us uh, some indication of of the, the extent of that problem or do you think that the the uh a bad outcome for the Conservatives is just is so baked in there that the the change to a change of Prime Minister doesn't necessarily um, change the situation.
3: Yeah I think it's baked in that there's a tendency always to look for, for May There are usually elections in May is the point that we're waiting for to see kind of how things stand uh, I assume it will be um, bad for the Conservatives I don't think that the, the, the rumours that that's the point at which Johnson and his people are going to relaunch his bid to take this over i mean the fact that that's even an option shows in a way how farcical the position is for them um, in a sense i think the conservatives have got 18 months or 2 years at the end of a 12 13 year period of rule. british politics goes through these cycles i mean it's clear it is cyclical you had the you know you had the the, the labor years that ended more or less in 79, you had the Thatcher years that ended in 97, you had the new labor years that ended in 2010. And now in 2024, that period is going to come to an end. And it does tend to go in these sort of decade, decade and a half long cycles. And we are on that turn. And so there's a question for all politicians when that turn is relatively clear, what do you do? Does the Conservative Party renew itself? Does it, as some people around, the more responsible people around Starmer are rep- to think? Does it try and bequeath something to its successor administration that they can work with? I don't know. But we are in a different politics in 2023. Even at the height of party gate, when Johnson was still prime minister, I think that there were scenarios in which the Conservative Party could think plausibly about winning another election. If you take that away, it looks very, very different. I mean, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. You know? <laughs> I mean, I realise this is a fairly sort of black and white prediction, but I just, it's, it's, you know, even thinking of the acts of God, I just find it hard to see, particularly in a politics as we have now, which is not, you know, it's not that politics of the 80s and 90s, sort of Thatcher years even you know, the, the period before Major 1 in 92, where governments become very unpopular, everyone recognises it's a five-year, four, five-year cycle, the polls turn against them, they're 20 points behind, halfway through a parliament, and they come back to win. That's not the politics we have now. What The politics we have now is much more tribal, much more entrenched. The, the polls didn't move during COVID. I mean, during this extraordinary period, nothing really happened. And then the Conservative Party just destroyed itself. And it went from, relatively speaking, neck and neck to 20, 30 points behind in the space of you know, a couple of weeks. You don't come back from that.
0: And Keir Starmer has to continue to carry his, his Ming vase, but maybe with more of a, uh, uh, a relaxed um, gait than, than,
3: than previously. Yeah, and I thought he was this morning. I thought he was. He was confident. I thought it was quite a good speech. It, it was very Blairite. I mean, people said that Sunak's speech was Blairite because it was about targets, but you know, with Blair, targets were kind of you know a philosophy in themselves. It was almost evangelical, what works politics, after the age of ideology. I, I thought Sunak's version of it was much, much more managerial. But you know, Starmer this morning, he had that vision, the thing that I most associate with not just Blairite politics, but with Blair himself. A lot of his speech was about how his side can see how everything connects. There was a lot of talk about what's going to be different with a Labour government is that we can see that energy and migration and Brexit and the NHS and education and social care all connect to each other. You have to have a kind of holistic solution. That's incredibly Blair-right. And then he faces the challenge of Blair-right politics, that that goes along with saying, but we're not all about central control. I mean, I think the great unresolved dilemma for Starmer and the current Labour Party is they, he said, clearly, we have two messages today. One, we're going to be a government that sees that everything connects to everything else. And second, we're going to devolve power. And those two things cannot both be pursued at the same time, because if you devolve power, you disconnect things from each other. Different parts of the country will go down different routes. If you think it's all connected, you are effectively a centraliser. I think that was the unresolved dilemma of Blairism. I think it's the unresolved dilemma for Starmer. But he gave a good speech. You know, he sounded like he believed in both of these two incompatible things.
0: And Alex, do you feel um, that the Labour Party now has time to get from a position of, you know, a plausible-sounding speech? to a, a, a work-through plan of, of how they're going to implement this? As, as, De, as David says, some of it is not yet clear how the different things they're saying they will do are actually compatible with each other. Do you think there's, that, that thinking is, is being done and is there time for it to, to play out before the next election?
2: Yes. And th- th- there is time. And I think, I suppose it, 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 operates at different levels. The, um, you know, people talk about Labour not having many policies. They do actually have quite a lot of policies. I think what they haven't done so far is set them all in a kind of, uh, election, uh, uh, ready narrative. Uh, and I guess that's partly what Starmer's speech was. And, and, and they can continue on that political project over the course of the next uh, 18 months but yes the very fact as david says you know whether whether david's right or not in terms of the um, sort of confidence of a, a labor government the fact that they can think in those terms and can start to plan in those terms i mean if you were jeremy corbyn in 2017 or 2019 uh, uh, there's not a lot of point thinking about how you are going to operate in government if it doesn't seem you know particularly likely that you might In government, whether the reading of that was right or not, Um, uh, Labour can uh, apply that sort of slightly more managerial slightly more civil servicey uh, lens to their uh, to their policies and one of the things that you know, I would imagine that they're thinking about now is how does you know policy X fit with policy Y how do we coordinate these across government how do we prioritise what are we going to legislate for first um, uh, what are the sorts of things we, we want to get done early in a term because they'll either set the agenda or because they'll take four or five years to, uh, to have an effect and so those sorts of conversations are the ones that I would imagine the shadow cabinet are starting to have with a bit more confidence now that they might have done a year ago
0: okay let's look now beyond the uk and focus on events overseas which will continue to have a bearing on events here david how do you see the war in ukraine evolving this year do you think that the western alliance will continue to hold
3: um I mean yeah I I have no more idea than anyone else but yes in the sense that the thing that seemed to threaten it was um winter um and as you mentioned there isn't winter it seems in Europe at the moment you know it's I mean that the, the temperatures are terrifying um and that thought that the thing that would fracture it in Europe was an energy crisis hasn't come to pass and seems, I don't know enough about this to know but it seems unlikely therefore that um, it'll happen, um, and then you get to spring. Presumably, the the war itself resumes in some more mobile way. Perhaps I don't know. Um, it you know, it may be frozen as it is. I imagine, again, speaking without any real expertise on this, that there will be one more big Russian offensive of some kind. I can't imagine Putin just sitting on on where he is because it's not really a sustainable position for him. So, they, you know, there could be some. Event of that kind, which puts puts strain on it again. But um, the thing that, when we talked before, seemed like the threat, which was the threat of a genuine energy crisis this winter, people across Germany aware of unable to heat their homes. That hasn't come to pass. Um, I see Macron has become more bullish and is is sending tanks to Ukraine. You know, again, those things. The thought that somehow the Russians could could peel off the French. It looks. Uh, you know the, the alliance looks as solid as it did a few months ago. Um, but beyond that, you know it's war. And the thing about wars is, I think electoral politics it's a it's a bit of a lottery. But you can make predictions. War predictions are not a game. I think anyone should be in.
0: And Gemma Davis talked there about how the energy situation has played out in Europe, and and we now presumably have another uh, six months in which Europe can get its act together in terms of preparing for the next winter, which may not to be as mild, but there's a little bit more leeway now for people to think about where they need to be in terms of mitigating the risk of supply from Russia.
1: Yes, I think that's right. I mean, we've, we've sort of made it largely through this winter, which was the first big test of the preparations and the sort of alternative sources of supply that European countries have come up with. Um, I think the longer this drags on, the more it becomes a test of how effectively UK government and other governments have prepared themselves because obviously when when the war first hit um, back in last February there was a limit to what governments could do the tools that they had at their in their uh, grasp but as this has dragged on for months and months and months governments can and should have been thinking about and gathering evidence and putting in place preparations to give themselves more options um, for the next winter. So I think that starts becoming increasingly a test of of how effectively governments have dealt with this, is do they now have more options than they had in February 2022? And and David, obviously, Ukraine is one
0: um, big international flashpoint which dominated 2022, are there other areas of the globe we should be directing our attention to in
3: 2023? I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, I think the most extraordinary thing that's going on in the world at the moment is what's happening in China. And part of what's extraordinary about it is that we don't have much idea at all of the extent of you know what allowing COVID to let rip is doing, even at the most basic level of um, deaths. Um, you know, here, here's this regime that for a long time was being talked up in the West as one that was, in a way, the ultimate technocratic, pragmatic regime. It just happened not to be democratic, so it was more authoritarian. But nonetheless, it was run by engineers. It is, on the whole, the Chinese Politburo is made up of engineers who think about problems in very pragmatic terms. They'd adopted a zero-COVID strategy. And for a while, China at least told the world it was a success story. It became clear quite a long time ago, I think, that zero-COVID was a mistake. And then it went along with actually basic failures of governance. They didn't manage to get as effective a vaccine in place, and then they didn't manage to persuade or coerce their people into getting vaccinated. And now it's a regime that is (laughs) announcing to the world that no one is dying of COVID when we know that that cannot be true. I mean, it looks more like a Chinese regime of the 60s or 70s than this sort of sleek, techno-driven internet savvy regime that we were you know, being talking about in the 2010s. And I think it's a remarkable shift. It, it must have weakened the both authority and indeed the sort of self-confidence of the ruling elite in China. I think it will have, it's bound to have Profound knock on consequences. But what's most remarkable about it for me is the speed in which this happened. After all, this was a regime that when it really came under pressure on this, there were actual public protests for the first time that the state didn't seem to know how to control. It buckled very, very quickly and abandoned one policy for a completely different one, which was to let COVID rip. And then it does not know how to communicate to its own people or the rest of the world what is going on. So it's quite quickly looks like, on this issue at least, it's floundering. And given its power, given its importance, given the options that are available to it, including the classic option that authoritarian regimes often take when domestically things are going wrong, which is to project outwards, this seems to me the big shift internationally over the last couple of months. I mean, something something has happened in China that whose consequences will play out across the next decade, I think.
0: I agree with you. I mean I thought it was remarkable how how quickly and yet with little um uh laying of the groundwork that the policy was reversed. I'm interested in in what you say about whether the response might be to project outwards. What do you think um the the whole covid um situation means for for something we were increasingly worrying about last year which was was China's um Uh, view of Taiwan?
3: Yeah, again, I I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. But uh, the assumption of many people is that the default should be at some point, this Chinese regime, if it doesn't collapse, and there's no reason to think it will collapse, is more or less committed in its own mind to an attempt to bring Taiwan back into China. Um, And that would have to be some form of military action. And if that is the default, then it's largely a question of timing. And on the one hand, the the regime looks weaker, and it's had the salutary experience of watching what happened to Russia and Ukraine, but it's also still in its own mind, I'm sure thinks it's a serious, competent, technocratic regime in the way that I'm, I'm sure it knows that Putin's regime is just a kleptocracy, and China is not. So it can learn those lessons. And it may be that as it were, the the window is narrowing for it. I don't know. But um, it it certainly, China does seems like both domestically and internationally, a less stable place than it did even 12 months ago. And it is a superpower now. I mean, it is a superpower. And that, that should make us all focus very seriously on what might happen.
0: And Gemma, there was a a Times article last year which suggested that the UK economy was not in any way prepared for a Chinese invasion of, of Taiwan. Just how brittle do you think the economy is right now?
1: I think the war in Ukraine sort of highlighted and made people aware of the problems that arise when you suddenly cut off Trade flows and financial links with another country as a result of war, but actually the UK has very little interaction with Russia economically relative to the interaction that the UK has with China. Um, So the kind of how would the UK cope without trade with China is a on a totally different order of magnitude of question compared to the impact of um, what happened with Russia. So it is hugely important. But it it raises kind of, there's not an obvious answer to this. I think there's been a lot of talk um, in the last few years with COVID and then the war with Russia about um, should there be more onshoring of activity? Should we just bring, instead of being so reliant on other countries to supply us with the goods and services we need, should we produce more of that at home? Um, It's not totally obvious that that is the right answer because, part of the idea behind global trade was actually to diversify um, who you can rely on. So in in an old world where we produced everything ourselves, then you're very reliant on what happens in the UK. If shock happens to the UK, that's hugely damaging because um, it's all very concentrated. So it's not totally obvious that we should stop wanting to interact with the rest of the world, um, but it does mean we should uh, be thinking if there isn't a potential for... China to uh, take military action against Taiwan about how reliant we are within our supply chains on things that are coming from China and whether there are alternative sources that firms and government should be thinking about.
0: Mm, I think even I can answer that one fairly quickly. Um, Alex, we've had uh, New Labour's ethical foreign policy. We've had David Cameron's muscular liberalism. Do we need something new for
2: 2023? Uh Good question. Uh, pro- probably not. Um, I think because uh, for the simple reason that, that the UK's interests, uh, you know, do change over time, but slowly. I think, uh, consistency and predictability in, in foreign policy is a, is a good thing. I mean, we had the integrated review a couple of years ago that set out our position on, um, uh, on, uh, or the government's position on, on, on foreign policy and security policy. They've said they'll, you know, they're in the process of updating that after the, uh, after the war in Ukraine. Um, but the invasion of Ukraine, but if, if, if you look at the things we've talked about on this, you know, through this podcast, uh, the, the, the climate, uh, is going to remain a foreign and security policy question. Um, Russia has been clearly a threat since the Salisbury poisonings, if not, uh, before, um, you know, Perhaps a slightly different threat now, following the Ukraine invasion, but very much still there. China, enormous issue. Part of the integrated review, part of the uh, uh, government's foreign policy, has been um, has been to sort of uh, tilt security questions more towards China. The integrated review saw China as a strategic rival um, uh, rather than a, a partner, which I think is an interesting, uh, you know, was an important um, shift, but one that uh, one that will sustain. So, no, I mean the UK will remain. Multilateral relationships will remain important to the UK. Relationships with the United States, um, uh, um, an integrated approach to China uh, and Russia, and then climate as a global security uh, threat. I guess the big question is Europe uh, and the extent to to which how that plays out in our in our foreign policy. I mean, it's a little bit like um, David was saying in terms of Rishi Sunak as the management consultant. I suspect he wants to kind of park Europe and um, uh, and and yes, uh, deal with um, particular Northern Ireland or whatever issues as they. As, as, as they uh, uh, cause problems. Um, but it feels like uh, that's the big unresolved kind of strategic question for UK foreign policy and it probably won't be resolved until um, there's either a, either a uh, you know refreshed and revived Sunet government or a Starmer-led Labour government.
0: David, I want to finish just by taking a step back and, and asking for your view of something that we spoke about last time you were on our podcast, which is the sort of state of health of British politics in 2023 if you look around the world um the defeat of bolsonaro and le pen the apparent loss of momentum for trump the end of boris johnson it do you buy the the theory that populism is losing its grip um or is that um uh, a naive way to think about things and what are what's the what are the implications for the uk now
3: i mean i think it's, it's hard to say and um given all of the challenges that we've talked about, you know, the, the possibility of political conditions in which extreme politics of, of left or right um, become appealing again. It's not hard to envisage those, but for now at least, and, and Alex mentioned it, you know, populism is causing more problems for the right than, than for the left. I mean, the Republican Party are torn because 20... Um, Members of Congress who believe some pretty populist things. The New York Times did an analysis of them. You know, how many of them? Almost all endorsed by Trump. How many of them supported Trump that the election was stolen from him? Almost all of them um, are holding their party to ransom. And I mentioned that you know Rishi Sunak being outflanked on the right. It hasn't gone away. Nigel Farage has not gone away. Nigel Farage, who helped deliver Boris Johnson his majority by standing down in all those seats, you know, he's there and. He does speak in the same way that I think a kind of pure Corbynism speaks for 20, 25% of the electorate, maybe, maybe 20%. So does a kind of pure Farageism. And the challenge of the big parties is to hold their coalition together and to sort of bring those people in. And for now, at least, the center left, and it includes Biden in the United States seem to be doing a better job of it than the center-right, where the populists are broken away. But it's also revealed that the populists are therefore relatively weak. I mean, they are a, a 20% faction, not a 40 or 50% faction. You know, Boris Johnson might be a 40%, 45%. Um, you're capable of generating that level of support, but that's because he's not just a populist. Um, Though you might think Trump was just a populist, the reason he won the presidency is because he was the Republican candidate, and most people who voted for him were voting for the Republican candidate. So, in that sense, I think electoral politics has squeezed populism. And I think you know, I don't think it's you know, (laughs) I've I've talked about the fact I think there's going to be a Labour government, but I don't think it means we're on the dawn of a sort of glorious decade for centre-left social democracy because that thing doesn't really exist anymore, and and no one I think would be able to define what it means. But the period in which people like Bolsonaro were winning elections, um, that looks to me as though it will be associated with the decade plus following the financial crisis. And the decade plus following COVID looks different to me. It looks like a different phase. But that doesn't mean that, that... populism has gone away. And and the one thing that I think is absolutely clear is that electoral politics around the world is still really struggling to accommodate lots and lots of people and beliefs and interests that don't fit in the conventional sort of vessels for that. You know, two-party politics, particularly in Britain and the United States, is really under strain because it's not a two-party world anymore. And there's too much variety, there's too much variety of communication. There's just too much diversity. And so that strain is still really there. And you know, the one thing that I am struck by in what Starmer said in when he was talking about, you know, how you could have a Britain that was both more sort of joined up and also more decentralized, it seems to me it's still the, the biggest thing in the way of that is our electoral system. And he's not going to touch proportional representation because he knows his party probably now can win under that system. And that system, to me, is creaking more and more and more. And I don't think Starmer is going to enjoy trying to manage it any more than the Tories have, actually. You get your majority, but God, then it's a nightmare.
0: And as you say, though, the incentive to change it disappears the moment you, you win your majority under the old system.
3: Yeah, so it'll carry on for sure. Um, and it's not a panacea or anything like that, but a kind of politics which is more long termist and is more based around actually the trading off of different interests in this very diverse electoral landscape that we have. It, I just, I increasingly don't see how it fits a first past the post electoral politics but it's the politics we're going to have, for sure, any more that they're going to change it in the United States. They're not even going to change the Electoral College. These things don't change, and the world just kind of grinds through it, and it makes more and more screeching noises.
0: And on that note, that's it for today. Many thanks to Alex Thomas, Gemma Tetlow, and especially to David Runciman. And thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. Why not start the year with a spring in your step by giving us an upbeat review or subscribing to Inside Briefing? And then head to our website to find out details of the first IFG annual conference, which will be a great day of speakers, speeches, discussion and panels featuring Penny Mordant, Lisa Nandy, Stephen Flynn, Chloe Smith, Stephen Bush, Ayesha Hazarika, and wait for it, a special live recording of Inside Briefing. <laughs> you register for your place now. I started this podcast by wishing everyone a happy new year and I think after everything we've been discussing that is probably the best way to end it. Happy new year everyone and good luck.